0: We are doing an Advent sermon to this morning and tonight at five o'clock. So I'm trying to like hook you to come back, because I know that some of you had made a choice today that you want to either come to the early service right over the five o'clock. I'm just saying that if you don't come tonight, you're going to miss the whole ending. Like no pressure. Like your Christmas will be absolutely ruined. Uh, you won't be able to function tomorrow morning and opening your gifts. So that's that's how it happens. Um, How many of you know who J.R. Tolkien is? Okay, so a lot of us do know who J.R. Tolkien is. Uh, He wrote The Lord of the Rings that turned into those epic movies, right? Uh, He was friends with C.S. Lewis. You might have heard of that name before. They had a group called The Inklings. It was a literary group that met in a pub in London uh, where they would discuss their their ideas of writing and their ideas. Now, notice that C.S. Lewis did Narnia. Tolkien did Lord of the Rings, those are two epic fantasies that have shaped your life, whether you realize it or not, and your children's lives, whether you realize it or not, and your grandchildren. It's amazing. Uh, so fantasy is this writing that has to, it, it does all this genre, fairy tales, myths, legends, su- uh, sci-fi, superheroes like Marvel and DC. It's the fantastical world of creatures uh, and storylines. It's like Harry Potter. That's all in this realm or this genre called fantasy. Now, what Tolkien says about fantasy is he says this, fantasy, all of that, taps into your deepest longings in your heart that realistic fiction cannot touch. So what's realistic fiction? That would be like your crime novels, your super thrillers, your action novels, right? That kind of literature, historical fiction. So in one sense, (laughs) Tolkien is saying, if you don't like fantasy, you're like the the lion in The Wizard of Oz, you have no heart, So the top five, this is very interesting, of realistic fiction's out there today. Number five is called The Crossover. It's supposed to be about a basketball player. Uh, Number four, Wonder. Number three, The Fault in Our Stars. Number two, Out of My Mind. And number one, The Hate You Give. All right, so that's the realistic fiction. What are the deep longings of the heart that that kind of fiction can't touch, but good fantasy fiction does touch? This is what he says. You ready for this? This is amazing. You get to the longing to experience the supernatural. So if you get down to the deep, like, bottom of your heart, there is this longing to experience something much more beyond you and much more beyond this world, but another world that's just as real. So when God made the visible world, he made an invisible world. And one of the deepest longings of your heart is to experience the other world. The other is this, to escape death. I think that's self-explanatory. Everybody wants that. I mean, how much literature is built around escaping death? Or trying to? The other is this, to know a love you can never lose. To never age, to live forever. To, like, run and never get weary. To, like, do amazing things, accomplish amazing (laughs) feats. You long for that. I long for that. The other is this, to fly. And that, how many of you want to fly? Like, seriously, I would love to fly. How many of you want to talk to animals? That's another deep longing. Yes. Of course you want to talk to animals. You do talk to your animals. I talk to my dog all the time. Stop! And the other is this, to triumph over evil, that in the deep places of your heart, you want to be a victor, a champion, a hero over evil. Tolkien says that all good fantasy is ultimately an echo it's it's a ripple in this world so like when good fantasy happens in this world it happens because it's a ripple it's a wave of an ultimate epic fantasy behind it what is that ultimate epic fantasy or story that comes Either crashing into this world or like a ripple, you see it in good fantasy and good stories. He says it this the story that most complete is called a U catastrophe. Now he made that word up. He calls it a good catastrophe. He says the marvel of all marvels is that there's this larger than life U catastrophe, this good catastrophe called the birth of Christ. He says that this birth of Christ is the ultimate good story, and it's why there's any good stories. This birth of Christ is why you have these deep longings in your soul that you can't touch, but this can. It's amazing. So one sense, Tolkien says the birth of Christ, he actually does say it's primary art, it's original art. It's the art of all art. It's if you get to the most foundational level, fundamental level of what art is, it's the birth of Christ. Amazing. If Matthew was here, he'd say that the birth of Christ is the deepest magic there is. So, do you long for a good story? Do you long to be touched at the bottom most places of your heart? The birth of Christ is the origin and the most fundamental story in the world, and it touches your heart like nothing else can. And I know many of us are sitting there going, I have sat through so many, because I'm that person. I'm not a fan of Advent. I've sat through so many Christmas sermons that have been hokey and weird that never touch my heart. They don't even give me a sentimental smile. They make me like, oh, my word. So the challenge before this text, and I'm putting it on the text, not on me, is that this story actually does reach the bottom of your heart. So are you ready for it? Do you want to hear what Tolkien says is the greatest fantasy, the epic fantasy of all fantasies, the story of all stories, the greatest longing that you've been made for of all longings, here it is. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now, the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all, go ahead and take your seats. Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. This is the the most epic story of all stories, and we need you to open our eyes and shine on the page. So, O Lord... Fill us with your spirit. Shine on the page. May we actually see the story of all stories. And would you touch and reach and heal and change and justify and sanctify the bottom of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Let's put verse 18 up there if we can. Malachi. Okay. So it says now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. What way? How did it take place? Matthew says the way of deep magic. Watch this. Listen to this. Listen to the text. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they had sexual union, she was found to be with child. So this is amazing, right? This is amazing. Mary's a virgin. She's had no sexual union with a man, and Mary is pregnant. Yeah, that's the stuff of fairy tales. That's the stuff of a good catastrophe. Let's keep going. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Which way? What way did it take place? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So it gets even better. Mary is a virgin. Mary is pregnant. And God is the Father. Abracadabra. (laughs) And you just want to talk to animals. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, it gets even better. Let's keep going. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. What way? Verse 22, if we can. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by a prophet. This prophet spoke 700 years before this event. So what's about to be announced is old news. It's been around for at least 700 years. And if you go back to Genesis, who knows how long? Talk to the young earth people. I don't know. And here's what was said back in Isaiah, 700 years, about 750 years before the birth of Jesus. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Mary is a virgin. Mary is pregnant. God is the father. And the baby is God himself. Mic drop. Amazing. Jesus is God with you. Jesus is God with you. Experience the supernatural. Experience a love that will never let you go, that you can never lose. Fly, talk to animals. Run and never grow weary. This is the most epic of all epics. God God. Actually, with you. Inconceivable. Nobody says these things. So even if you're investigating Christianity, and I've said this a couple of weeks ago, if you're investigating Christianity, or if you're a seeker, and you want to know what's true, and you have all the religions in the world out there to explore and all the belief systems and philosophies that have been written since whenever they've been written, the place you would want to start would go where it is most inconceivable Claim to be God with you. Nobody says this stuff. Eastern religions—you got Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Confucianism, Shamanism, Spiritism, New Age, Star Wars—says God is an impersonal force, not that God is a divine person. He's an impersonal force, and if he's an impersonal force, he permeates all things and all people. But some of you can like get more of the force, like Luke Skywalker. And some of you, like shamans and religious leaders or spirit guides, you can tap into more of that impersonal force and have it more infused in you. Some places, like Santa Fe or Missing 411 or Area 51, they might have more infusions or permeations of this force in that area. Or Sedona or other places, or even things like rocks and crystals, they could have more of it. But Christianity says, Jesus is God with you. God himself, a divine person. Inconceivable. No one says these things. No one. The Western religions of the day were the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. Uh, they said God is many, many gods competing for turf on earth. And so these gods would localize themselves in elements like fire and, and the water, the seas, the stars, the weather, right? And they would battle and they would do particular areas of life of like war and fertility and hope. And these gods would be many, many gods that could be Something, an emotion like hope, or it could be a place like the sea, but they're all competing for the same turf, creation. And Christianity says God is with you. Jesus is God with you, the God that rules them all. Christianity says he's not the competing God. He's the one that rules them all, and he's with you. So, the Hebrew world, the world of the Bible, and then later uh, in 610 A.D. Islam, Muhammad's in a cave, he has an angel called Jabril, shares the words of Allah to him, and now you have Islam, which happened in 610 A.D. Uh, that world both believe the biblical world, the Old Testament world in Islam, that God is transcendent, which means he's the creator but he's also imminent, which means that he has a relationship with his creation. So God is not uh, infused in creation. He's different. He's other. He's transcendent. He's infinite. But at the same time, he made creation. He made you, and he loves you, and he has a relationship with you. He's near. He's far, and he's near. No one says that God is a human being. And Christianity says he's not just transcendent and he's not just imminent. He's a human being. And he's with you. No one says this stuff. No one. The birth of Jesus is the deepest magic there is. All right, so Jesus is God with you. So the question is, why should you care? I mean, why should you care about this stuff? Why should I care? Why should we care? Why do we get together for Christmas? Why put up with everything that goes on with Christmas? The stress of the packaging, the food, the family, everything. Why? Why should we care about Christmas? So I'm going to give one reason this morning, and I'm going to give another reason at 5 o'clock tonight. And again, you have to be there at 5 o'clock tonight or you're just going to have a horrible Christmas. I'm sorry. All right, here it is. Why should you care? Here's the answer. You ready? Because you and I are unfaithful to God. That's why we should care. In other words, there are, there's a multiplicity of ways in which the Bible communicates this idea called sin. Uh, there's a way in which the Bible communicates sin in terms of relating to the law. So they will say things like, sin is you break God's law. So the law is the reality. It's the spiritual reality of the universe. It's just the way things are. It's just reality. It's creation. It's the spiritual fabric. It's like thermodynamics. It's like gravity. It's just there. It's reality. It's not if you ignore gravity, you hurt yourself. And so the spiritual fabric of the universe is called the law. And sin is described in one way of turning away from reality and making your own reality. So in one sense, sin is described as you and I being the own, our own lawgivers and our own lawmakers and that we're our own judge. And we said, no, that's not good and evil. What you say over here, God, I say this is good and this is evil. So sin is described that way. Sin is also described politically. So it can be described in the courtroom, but it also can be described in the political realm. It can be described as kings and rulers and power and control. And it can be described as sin actually is like serving and being enslaved to ruthless rulers and controls that don't love you, but actually punish you and crush you. And so it can be described in the political realm that sin is actually like we try to be our own control. And when we try to be our own control, whatever we try to find control in ends up controlling us and crushing us. But sin also can be described in the religious realm, like worship. It can be described as having Substitute gods and substitute saviors. Jim mentioned it before. You and I were made for worship, so sin can be described as breaking worship with God. It can be described as I want to try to be my own God and my own Savior. So it's described that way in the religious world. That's one of the world. The law in the religious world is one most everybody's familiar with. The political images and ideas are not. But what is the number one way in the Bible? That sin is communicated to us. Either as an image or as an idea. Do you know what it is? The marital. The relational. That the number one way that God wants you to know how he relates to you is in the most intimate relationship that we can even fathom here on earth. And so sin in that idea is being unfaithful to the one who loves you. It's words like "spiritual adultery are used throughout the Old Testament. I mean, you read Hosea and it'll make everyone blanch. Some I mean, of you' be like, "That's in the Bible. Yeah, that's like, yeesh." I wouldn't want my kids hearing that. So isn't that interesting? So why should we care about Christmas? Or the birth of Jesus? Because ultimately what this text is saying, you and I are unfaithful to God. And her husband, 19, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Do you see this? This is amazing. A virgin pregnancy is pretty awkward, wouldn't you say? And I know it's awkward for the woman, but I'm a man, so I'm like, it's, I would th- that's just awkward for the dude. I mean, okay, honey, how did this happen again? I want you to look at verse 19, what it's saying again. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What do you think is happening in Joseph's heart in verse 19? I think it's something like this. The woman that I love is pregnant, and it's not my child. Do you see what's happening here? Right at the birth of Jesus, the very first human condition communicated, the very first breakage and wreckage communicated at the birth of Jesus is a sexual scandal. Marital unfaithfulness. that all of us are saying, but she wasn't, she wasn't. Exactly. But in Joseph's eyes, she was. That's why the text says he had in mind to divorce her quietly. No belief system, no religion, in the history of the world begins this way, in the middle of a sexual scandal. Marital unfaithfulness. So don't miss what else is going on in Joseph's heart, though. It's absolutely incredible. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame. <laughs> oh, gosh. Why? Why is he unwilling? I mean, that's, the, that's an amazing word. Unwilling. What is unwilling? Unwilling is your heart. Unwilling is like the deepest bottom place of your heart. And in the deepest bottom place of his heart, he's unwilling to put her to shame. Why? Because he still loves her. Mary is unfaithful. And he still loves her. Matthew wants you to know that the deepest magic of all, the magic that reaches the bottom of your heart, and if it goes to the bottom of your heart, it actually changes you and makes you a human being. You are unfaithful to God and He is unwilling to let you go. He still loves you. A love you can never lose. Let's experience the supernatural, shall we? Let's talk to animals. Let's run and never grow weary. Let's like do amazing things. This is the deep magic. This is the love you can never lose. This is Jesus is God with you. Well, I mean, I could go and I could say this real easy. Trust the love you can never lose, right? You are unfaithful to God. He loves you anyways. Trust that. Trust the love you can never lose. Amazing what kind of things could happen in you if you realize that you're unfaithful to God and he loves you anyway. And it's a love you can never lose. And you actually begin to believe that. How would that actually like work itself into your thinking and work itself into your feelings and work itself into your relationships? Just think what it would do to your relationships. We don't have time for that. But here I want us to look at something. At the end of the story, it does happen to Joseph. So I want you to know that, like, you're like, well, gosh, I mean, I don't know. I get a glimpse of that every once in a while. I feel it every once in a while, but I don't know if it can really happen. How does it even, what does it even look like in a life? And what we get at the end of Joseph is it did happen to him. He did get this. And so at least there's one human being right at Christmas that gets this. And if he could get it, you can get it. So watch what happens. This is amazing. At the end of the story, he trusts in the love that he can never lose. Joseph realizes, I'm unfaithful to God, and he still loves me. And it reaches him. And how do we know this? Let's look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, remember, he's going to, Mary's unfaithful, the love of my life. The, the woman that God gave me is pregnant, and it's not my child. He's considering these things but he's he's got a divorcer cuz he's a just man or he's seen to be the adulterer do you see how this works this is a shame and honor society this is a traditional society today's society nobody would even notice right but in that society morality was everything and you're talking about a society <laughs> that that is like the i mean it still is in some traditional cultures today is it not It's not in more progressive cultures because more progressive cultures are more about turning away from reality, trying to find yourself and find your salvation by being bad, but more traditional cultures are trying to save themselves and find themselves by being good. They're both lost. Of course they are. But it's just interesting to point out the different dynamics that are going on in each culture. So, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what she's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he's told twice it's from the Holy Spirit, just so we know that God is the father of the child. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Now, verse 20 and 21 tells us how he actually believes it. That's what we're going to look at tonight. That's the cliffhanger. How does Joseph come to believe this? Right now, we're just saying he does. So let's get to him saying he did. Watch how the story ends. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The moment that Joseph believes, I am unfaithful to God, and he loves me anyway. This is a love I can never lose. The moment he believed that, whenever it was in the text, we don't know, somewhere in there, probably when the angel's talking to him, it's starting to work itself in. His eyes are starting to open. He's starting to be like, oh, my word, this is real. Oh, my word, this is true. Oh, my word, this is God with me. It's happening, right? The moment it happens, what happens to him? He's absolutely secure. He's absolutely a brave person. So you're thinking, like, what kind of difference does a love that you can never lose, how does it affect you? Well, in this text, he becomes the most secure person in the world. He becomes the bravest person in the world. How do we know this? Because as one writer says, he kisses his reputation In the eyes of Joseph's family, friends, and community, the moment he takes Mary is the moment that Mary either had premarital sex and sinned atrociously in that culture, or he did. One of them did. And he's okay with it. Y'all, this is so important because in John chapter 8, Jesus is before religious authorities, and they basically say to him, Jesus, who's your daddy? Jesus lives with that his whole life and ministry. And Joseph is secure. And Joseph is brave. It's amazing. He's okay with it. He's absolutely okay with it. He really... Genuinely, When we say I don't care what people think or what people say, that's BS. But when Joseph says it right here, he's okay with it. So I've been watching some stand-up comedy these past couple of weeks. I don't recommend that. Um, so uh, disclaimer, this is not a pastoral endorsement of Chris Rock and the dudes I'm watching. But I am going to say... Those are some of the best communicators I've ever heard in my life. Definitely better than any preacher I've ever heard. Chris Rock is unbelievable. I'm not endorsing him, especially you sensitive types. No, I'm not doing that. All right, well, he has this, this one, uh, he does this one, I don't know what, act or, I don't know. I'm trying to learn his style. His style is interesting. He takes a topic, and he has a big idea about his topic. And then he has all these attaching stories to that big idea. And he repeats the big idea over and over again like a good preacher, like a good communicator. See, he'll tell his big idea, and then he'll tell a story or a funny thing. Well, one, he was on a topic. One of his big ideas was addictions. And, of course, he picked on and addressed the ones that are most common in our culture, pornography, right, and opioids, right? But then he does this. Then he says, but there's an addiction even worse. And I'm thinking, okay, worse than those? All right, you know, substance abuse, he just covered that. Pornography, he even said it wrecked his marriage and wrecks all of his relationships. Wrecked, he's saying it wrecks his idea of sex to this day. I'm like, okay, what is it? What is it? He says It's wrecking more lives, relationships, and the culture on an unprecedented scale. End quote. What is it? Attention. Attention. The need for attention. Joseph doesn't have that need. And he's the most secure person on the planet at the birth of Christ. And he's the bravest soul on the planet at the birth of Christ because he gets that he's unfaithful to God and God loves him.